Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church on this remarkably cool morning. The temperature in my car on my way in was 73 degrees. I could barely believe it, so I hope you all are enjoying. I think is what it's the closest we're gonna get to a cold snap for a while. So glad that you all are here, whether you're here in person or online, we are honored by your presence. We often say here at Northminster that the best thing we can bring to worship is ourselves. So good job getting yourself here today. I wanna say a special word of welcome to anyone visiting with us this morning, we are particularly honored by your presence and hope you will participate in all aspects of our worship service, including communion. We celebrate communion here weekly. Uh, and if you are in need of it, as a reminder, we do have gluten-free wafers available. Just get my attention when you come up for communion and we can make sure you get one of those. Um, also, if you would, please pass the worship registry down your row. It's on the inside aisle of your, of your row and make that as legible as possible if you could. Uh, it's just, we like to be able to keep track of who's worshiping with us, um, and that's the way that we do that. Uh, several announcements for you. The first is you will notice the beautiful flowers this morning. We usually take those after worship. I'm gonna ask you to resist the urge to take them because we have our fall follies tonight, and it would be nice to have some flowers for that event this evening rather than just the dregs, which are usually what's left. So please don't take the flowers. I do hope you will come for Fall Follies tonight. That's at six o'clock. DH, do we want folks who are performing to be here early? Uh, okay, so if you are performing, sharing your talent, please be here at five, so we can make sure we have everything you need and we're ready to go. Uh, also coming up on our calendar, Pub Theology is in a couple of weeks on September 21st. That's a Thursday evening. If you don't know what that is, or if you're interested and don't have any information, come talk to me, I'll get you the information. And then very important, on September 24th, we have a new members and inquirers class. This is for those of you who have just joined the church. If you have not been to this class before, or if you're interested in joining the church and would like to get more information, this is one of the ways that we share that information with you. There is a sign-up list outside of my office. If you would like to attend, we will feed you, if that sweetens the deal. Uh, if you look at your order of worship today, you will notice that we have the wonderful opportunity to hear from Chelsea King, who's going to sing for us an original song that he wrote back in June for the Pride event that Neela Pride put on. I can't hear the song without crying, so... Good luck to all of you if you've not heard it before. It is beautiful. I also want to give just a bit of a heads up about the sermon today and the scripture text you're going to hear. Starting today, I'm going to be doing a series on clobber passages in the Bible. If you don't know what those are, those are passages that tend to be used against various groups of people. Today, it's LGBTQ people. And to be able to deal completely with those passages, we have to read them. And reading them means some adult content. Nothing explicit, certainly, but for parents, especially for little ones, if that's not something you want your kids to hear, all of those readings will begin after the children's message, and they can, of course, go back to the back if that is more comfortable for you and for them. Because the last thing I want is for you to leave church and for them to ask you what some sort of word means that you're not prepared to explain. So, I give you that heads up in advance in case there is something you'd rather they not hear. Now, with all of that said, let's take a deep breath together. 
We take this deep breath, as I say every week, to give our minds and our hearts and our bodies a chance to catch up with one another. We take this deep breath to be appreciative of this time and this space that we get to share together. So take a deep breath. If it helps you to close your eyes, please feel free. As you breathe in, breathe in the love and the acceptance and the joy of this good place. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out the homework that isn't done or maybe isn't graded. Breathe out the laundry that is never ending. Breathe in again and know that you are loved by God just as you are. And then please join me in our call to worship. The God of transforming love gathers us for worship, calling us to take pride in who we are as beloved ones of the Holy One. If pride is celebration, If pride is resistance, if pride is liberation, then let us create spaces where LGBTQ youth and adults can be free because pride cannot exist for some without liberation for all of us. If pride is sacred, then let us declare LGBTQ people beloved by God as are each and every one of us. With dancing hearts, resilient spirits, and open minds, let us worship God. We praise God, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen.
made it. Good job. Let's get over here, Ricky, with the other kiddos. So I have a new book. You know I love books. Probably know that by now. Can I share some of it with you? Okay. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's a little long. But I do think it's a really important book, and it's about God's love. Because have any of you ever asked your mom or your dad or your grandparents, do you love me? Any of you ever asked that? Yeah. We all ask that question. Well, in this book, a little girl asked that about God. She said, one day I asked my mom, where is God? Is God here or is God there? She said, my love, God is everywhere. Is God here when I'm happy or there when I'm sad? My love, God is here when you're happy in your joy and celebration. God dances with you because you were God's creation. And God is there when you're sad, holding you when you're blue, hurting alongside you, because God gets sad too. Is God here when I'm scared or there when I'm brave? See if she's a superhero. My love, God is here when you're scared, when you're anxious and afraid. God is here to hold your hand on days you feel betrayed. And God is there when you're brave, when you feel like standing tall, when you're ready to face dragons. God is with you through it all. Ask me after church, okay? Is God here when I'm good and there when I'm bad? Do you see what happened? The vase got knocked over and spilled. Uh-oh. Mom might be mad, but here's what mom says. My God, love, God, is here when you choose goodness and are living from your heart. When you follow the path of love, God is with you from the start. And God is there when you mess up. And if you make a choice that isn't best, it doesn't mean you're bad. It means you're human, like all the rest. She drew on the walls. Not the best choice, is it? Is God here with her? Or there with him? See, she's getting ready to go to school. My love, God is here with her, having formed and called her good. God dwells in her, even when she feels misunderstood. And God is there with him, having made him wonderfully too. Because God is in all of us, it doesn't matter who. Is God here when I'm alive? And there when I die? You see, you got a little tombstone. My love, God is here with you now, filling your lungs with every breath. God is always near, and nothing can separate you, not even death. Because even when you die, God's arms are stretched out wide, ready to wipe away your tears and greet you on the other side. So God is here and there, I asked. Yes, she said. God is always here, and God will always be there. Because, my love, God is everywhere. So, on those days that you wonder, oh, does God love me? Is God with me? What's the answer? Yes. yes, God is with you all the time. If you're good or bad, a boy or a girl, if you are 
um, being kind or maybe not being so kind, if you're scared or if you're very, very brave, it doesn't matter. God is always with you. And that's what I want you to remember this week, okay? Turn around, face the congregation. We're going to do our prayer. Sit up nice and tall, please. Hands to yourselves. Turn all the way around. All the way around. Face the adults. Thank you. You're in charge. You're leading this, so you need to be nice and loud. I will say the first line. You say it back to me. Adults, you're welcome to join in. I see the face of God in you. I see the face of God in you. The love of Christ comes shining through. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. Oh, holy child of God. Oh, holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now. Story. I have a name. 
struggle if we were all reading from Genesis, the first chapter. So, God created humans in the image of God, male and female, God created them. And later on in the third chapter of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be waters under the sky, be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together were called seas. And God saw that it was all good. From Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But Lot urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and Lot made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, 
the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the crowd, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But the crowd replied, Stand back! And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then the crowd pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open, and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Peter, get up, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This reading is from Leviticus 18. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to sacrifice them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This final reading is from Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba as in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
Let's pray together. Once upon a time, a wise man offered a challenge to Jesus. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Today, the calendars on our desks share a vision of greatness. There are bills to pay, phone calls to return, appointments to keep. And yet Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God. The cameras of our memories share what commands us. Children to bathe and partners to help, parents calling and grandchildren to love. But we remember that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Still, the Spirit lures us to new priorities, open spaces to experience wonder, strangers who become friends, devotion to that which transcends. And we remember that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the commandments. Lord, we pray that your commandments can become our, the way we live our lives. Amen. is a reading from Leviticus 20. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood guilt is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. If a man takes a wife and her mother also, 
it is depravity. They shall be burned to death, both he and they, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he shall be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and has sexual relations with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. A reading from the 139th Psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the furthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and night wrap itself around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your, your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you. While I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes behold, beheld my unformed substance. In your book, were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them yet existed. This is a reading from Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the males, giving up natural intercourse with females, were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And finally, a reading from 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. As Debbie is getting into her place, I want to just say it felt really wrong to hear Chelsea's beautiful song and then read those ugly passages, so... I do apologize for that kind of whiplash combination, but hopefully you understand that for us to face something down, we have to read it. We have to read it out loud. Ready? Picture the scene. The President of the United States is about to address a gathering of radio talk show hosts in the White House. As he enters the room, they all stand and applaud, all except one, a blonde woman wearing a bright green suit. As the president is addressing the group, he loses his train of thought several times before eventually speaking directly to the woman in green. I'm sorry, are you Dr. Jenna Jacobson, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Well, thank you. The president tries to continue the speech about the power of radio communication. It doesn't work. He is thoroughly distracted. Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs, are you an MD? 
A PhD. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No, sir. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show, people call in for advice, and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs, and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed that you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they're confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always clears the table when it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? While you're thinking about that, may I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be staking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight you-know-what club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> that scene is, of course, from the West Wing. Uh, I asked Debbie if she would help. I feel a little bad making her the, the doctor because that is her favorite show of all time. Uh, and some of you, I'm sure, recognized that little clip. But I wanted to start with that rather long quotation because it not only highlights the absurdity of cherry-picking from the Bible, it also ends so gloriously with a bigot being put in their place. And who hasn't wanted to be President Bartlett and deliver that decisive verbal smackdown to someone who is howling the word homosexuals, an abomination? It would be so satisfying. Of course, most of us We'll never get the pleasure of being President Bartlett, mostly because he's fictional, and because he had excellent writers to give him the upper hand. He was always going to win. And yet voices like Dr. Jenna Jacobs are very real and present in our little corner of Louisiana, in our country, and in the church at large. So it's worthwhile for us to take some time to address these clobber passages head-on, talking about their meaning, their context, context, and wrestling with why they're in the Bible at all. Now, I realize that for some of you, you already know what you believe about these verses and how you understand them. You've done the work, you've wrestled, you've taken the deep dives. You're no longer hurt by these passages that are so often used as weapons. I'm going to ask you to follow along anyway, 
as your support can function as a buoy to those among us who are still stung by these verses, who haven't heard sermons putting these words into their proper context, who have only had these verses used against them from pulpits and by pastors who profess to be loving. My hope is to relieve some of that hurt today, but as we all know, healing is a process. I'm also a big believer in biblical refreshers. I don't expect any of you to know your Bibles backwards and forwards. So let's begin this discussion by reminding ourselves of the importance of context and why these verses are in the Bible at all. The definition of context is this. The interrelated conditions in which something exists or exists or occurs. In other words, context is all the things happening around something that give it meaning. Take, for example, Welton's stole that rests now in our narthex draped over his picture. To visitors, to new people, that stole, if you look at it closely, is just a mishmash of material draped over a portrait. But to those of you who were here when Welton became Northminster's pastor, that stole is a piece of fabric from your grandmother, a beloved scrap of a baby blanket, and on and on as those pieces of fabric were collected from the congregation to make that beloved stole. Context is what gives these simple items like Welton's stole, like the patent and chalice I have in my office that I got when I graduated from seminary. Context is what gives these simple items meaning And context is an inseparable part of reading and understanding the biblical text. This doesn't mean you can't just pick a Bible up and read a passage and be transformed by it. You absolutely can. But at the same time, understanding context can elevate and expand a story's meaning. Let me give you an example. That difficult story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which on the surface sounds like little more a story that's about little more than violence and sexual assault. But if you dig a bit deeper, you'll see that contextually, the story is also about a gross violation of the conventions of hospitality throughout the city, and by Lot in particular, in the hosting of these two strangers who we often think of as angels. This is in direct contrast to his brother Abraham, who earlier in the text is depicted as the epitome hospitality. That's also an important part of the text. Now, as a personal aside, I'm going to get even higher up on my soapbox for a minute and uh, would say to those who point to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as proof of God's hatred of homosexuality that there is a vast difference between consensual intimacy between two partners and the violent group sexual assault that is depicted in this story. The two have no business being equated ever. Nor should we overlook Lot's easy offering up of his daughters to the mob outside out of his own cowardice. I hope you caught that little section. I also hope you can see from this example that understanding context gives the Bible so much more meaning. But it doesn't answer the question, why are these passages in the Bible to begin with? Because it would be so much easier and more enjoyable to read the Bible without them, if we're honest. Alas, that's not the text we've been given. That's not the text that's been handed down. 
So we have to figure out how we can best live with what we do have. One of the ways to do this is by remembering that the people who gave us the Bible were doing the same thing we're doing. They were trying their best to be faithful to the stories and documents entrusted to them. In the process, what was produced was not, as you've heard me say before, a history textbook, a scientific journal, or even a reliable source of ancestry records. Rather, the Bible that we have is a product of many, many faithful people's efforts to tell the story of God and humanity, and then later, God through the person of Jesus and humanity. These efforts don't make the Bible easy to read, but they do make it worthwhile and sacred. Now, to move from more broad points to things that are more specific and address these clobber passages directly, I have four points. I've been chewing on this week. I promise to make them quickly. I've already been talking for a while. Point number one. The word homosexuality wasn't included in any Bible, in any Bible, until 1946. It was used in the Revised Standard Version when it was first put out. And in a research article done by a man named Ed Oxford, he found that this team was made up of 22 male translators, and they kept excellent records. These records include uh, letters from the head of the translation team, the man named Luther Allen Weigel, Uh, letters between him and a seminary student. The seminary student, I guess having read the RSV after it was published, challenged the use of homosexual in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and he provided a detailed outline of his reasoning. In Weigel's letter back, he admitted that the translation team had made a mistake in using the word homosexual and would seek to correct it in their next update. Here's the problem. Weigel and the rest of the team had just signed a 10-year contract saying they wouldn't make any changes to the RSV for 10 years. And during those 10 years, several other translations were released that used the RSV as their basis for translation. Therefore, they included the word homosexuality. You might be familiar with some of these Bibles, the New American Standard, the Living Bible, and the New International Version. Now, why did the RSV committee, the Committee of Translators, decide that homosexual was inaccurate? Well, because the Greek word that they were translating from was not condemning homosexuals. It was condemning those who were abusive in their pursuit of sexual encounters. Now, keep in mind, historical context shows us that abusive forms of sex were quite common in the ancient world. This included temple prostitution and owners abusing their slaves. More importantly, the Bible contains six verses, six, that appear to condemn homosexual activity, although as we know, that word wasn't put in there until 1946. It contains six verses that appear to condemn homosexual activity. It contains more than 200 verses that condemn heterosexual activity. 200. This means that a responsible reading of the text is not only knowing when that word was first introduced, it is understanding what it was put in place for 
which was abusive sexual activity. Here's point number two. First century people had no context for understanding committed, loving, monogamous same-sex relationships. They would have had as much concept of what those things meant as what a smartphone is, to say nothing of how to use one. Now, does this mean that committed same-sex relationships didn't exist? Probably not. Does this mean that trans people didn't exist? Probably not. But they certainly, first century people, certainly wouldn't have been, have been able to understand those things as they simply had no frame of reference. So is Paul condemning LGBTQ people in the New Testament? No. Paul had no concept of LGBTQ people. The argument is apples and oranges. What we can say for certain is that Paul definitely does not approve of the reprehensible activity that involved various abuses, just as none of us would. Here's the hardest part of this section. In the 40 years since the most popular Protestant Bibles have been published, those ones I named to you, uh, the Living Bible, the New International Version, which some of you might well have, In the 40 years since those have been published, we have seen the largest amount of teen and young adult suicide in the history of the world. Remember, that's since the word homosexual was put into the Bible. You can't convince me that's a coincidence. Point number three, and this is perhaps the most important one. Jesus doesn't say a single word about homosexuality. Jesus doesn't say a single word about homosexuality. Now, you could argue, again, he was a first century man. He didn't have a frame of reference. And I would say he talked about marriage. He talked about divorce. He talked about other sexual relationships. Surely he could have said something if it was something he was concerned about. The closest we get to Jesus saying anything about what we understand to be LGBTQ people is about accepting eunuchs. That's in Matthew 19. And I want to be really careful. I'm not equating trans people with eunuchs. Eunuchs were often forced into that identity. I'm also not suggesting that being trans is just about your genitalia, which is more or less what it meant to be a eunuch. But there are similarities. And not only can we read Jesus' words about inclusion for eunuchs, we can read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Wonderful scholar, his name is Dr. Justin Sabiatanis. He points out that when it comes to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, there were earlier baptisms in the book of Acts that the author chose to include. Author specifically chose to include to illustrate that all kinds of people were included into the Jesus movement. That's the reason the story of the eunuch is there. It would have been much easier to tell the story of an upstanding male pillar of the Jewish community being baptized or even of a Gentile woman. But instead, the writer of Acts chose to include the story of an outsider. That is important. Now, getting back to Jesus. To the Jesus movement, to Jesus himself, what do we hear? What can we read? What did Jesus talk about? And what did he do? Jesus talked about caring for the poor. 
not making religious practice an idol. He talked about being part of a community and advancing the kingdom of God. Jesus healed the sick. He ate with those society said were off limits. He made space for women to follow him in a deeply patriarchal society, and he embraced children. Of all the things Jesus talked about, homosexuality simply wasn't one of them. But let's remember what was. When he was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, Jesus' response was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So I started with Martin Sheen as President Bartlett, and I'm going to end with him as himself. Recently, I heard Martin Sheen give a speech on the picket line uh, of the writers and actors who are on strike in California. He told this story. It's an old Irish story of a man who arrives at the gate of heaven and asks to be let in. St. Peter says, of course, Just show us your scars. The man said, I have no scars. And St. Peter replies, what a pity. Was there nothing worth fighting for? I know many of you carry scars you had no choice in. They were forced upon you by those who are supposed to love you the most. I can't apologize for all of those people But as a pastor standing in this pulpit, I can say that I am sorry. As a straight person, I don't carry those scars. But remember, those scars are part of you. They inform who you are and how you treat others. For those of us without scars, who've never been told who we can and cannot love, it is our job to make sure we don't inflict scars on our LGBTQ siblings, on our children. It is our job to remember we don't hold the moral high ground. It is our job to speak up when we hear these clobber passages being used and remind people of how inclusive and loving and accepting Jesus really was. And it's the job of us as a community to live out and spread Jesus' most important message. Love God and love each other. Everything else depends on doing those two things.
The night before Jesus died, sorry, I'm in the wrong place. I'm all verklempt. As we come to this time of communion, we remember that this is the table of the heavenly feast, the joyful celebration of the people of God. Christ invites everyone to eat of the bread of life and to drink of the cup of the new covenant, for Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me shall never hunger. Those who believe in me shall never thirst. In the beginning, God provided every plant yielding seed and every tree with seed in its fruit for food. And when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God fed them with the miraculous food from heaven called manna. Later, when crowds were hungry, Jesus fed over 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. And when two were walking toward Emmaus, they recognized Jesus as they broke bread together. Friends, this is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is Christ's table. We are the guest, and Christ is the host. There's a seat here with your name on it. So kick off your walking shoes and make yourself comfortable. We are sitting and standing on holy ground. All are wanted and all are welcomed here with our doubts, our shortcomings, our failures, our griefs. No matter what you bring with you to this table, you aren't just tolerated. You are overwhelmingly wanted and welcomed. Thanks be to God for a love like that. Now, if you would please join me in the alternate Lord's Prayer that is printed in your order of worship. Our Father. God, lover of us all, most holy one, help us to respond to you, to create night before Jesus died was a solemn time around the table. Because of his relentless pursuit of love, he would be seized by those in power, but before he was taken, Jesus introduced this simple meal to his followers. For even though he knew the end was coming, Jesus joined with those he loved, and as the night lengthened, he took a simple portion of bread. He blessed it, he broke it, and he shared it with them, saying, remember me. In the same way, when supper was over, Jesus picked up a cup, he filled it with wine, and as he blessed it, Jesus reminded the disciples that he would go to the ends of the earth in love for them. Jesus does the same for us. Thanks be to God.
It would be remiss of me if I didn't encourage you to please thank Chelsea King for sharing that beautiful song. And both of our readers, they did not have an easy task today. So please make your appreciation felt. Now hear this benediction. May God bless you with distaste for superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go in peace. Amen.